This is the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast. I'm Monique Mitchelson, and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Levoque, and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. This week on the podcast, we have Paige Crystal Wilcox. Paige is an award-winning activist and author. She uses the intentional storytelling method to create compelling stories that counter unhealthy or unhelpful bias, tropes, and stereotypes in mainstream media. Paige is a neurodivergent woman who was assigned male at birth and does not use the labels trans or transgender. Paige, welcome to the podcast. We are so excited to have you on. Thank you so much for that awesome intro. I'm very excited to be here. So Paige, tell us a little bit about what you do and about intentional storytelling. Absolutely. So I should say that my day job is separate and for that I coordinate medical student teaching. That's something that I do enjoy, but it pays the bills. What I really am most passionate about is helping in more of a social impact way, especially with writing. And that's where intentional storytelling is very important to me. What intentional storytelling is, to work that out, you just step back and think, well, what is a story? A story is there for entertainment. With intentional storytelling, there is always something else. So it's either trying to address a social issue or it's trying to educate but it's always something in addition to entertaining. It should still be entertaining, but it can't just be entertaining to be intentional storytelling. And I have a very specific process that I use to go through um, for my writing that really considers the social impact. I think that's where it really comes back to for me is an acknowledgement of the impact that media of all kinds has on us, especially when there's repeated messages through media. It has a, a big influence on how we feel about ourselves, but also how we behave to other people. So it's very important to me as someone who makes stories to not be repeating mistakes or making problems worse. I really love that description page and I love hearing about how people who work in media and in storytelling in particular are taking on that awareness that storytelling matters. You know, we see ourselves in media, we see ourselves in stories, we see ourselves in narratives, and they actually have such a profound impact, exactly as you said, on our cultural consciousness and how we view ourselves, different people in society, different aspects of living, functioning, you know, whatever. So that's really awesome. And I think taking on that mantle of, I love stories and storytelling, and I want this to be about more. Yeah, and I think it's important that we all learn to be able to critically analyze stories and and critically analyze and self-reflect on uh, our own stories and whatever it is that we're producing and putting out there. It's a very important skill to learn. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what kind of got you into this whole intentional storytelling field? Absolutely. I totally can. Storytelling is like my favorite thing in the world. So, well, I grew up in a few different places. The first place that I grew up in 
was quite regional, um, bordering on rural and and then rural. And the circumstances of my childhood, I think, made stories much more important to me than to other people because I felt very isolated. And one of the first things I remember is within myself noticing that I seemed different to other people, quite different to other people. Part of that was definitely that I was a girl, but people related to me as a boy and I had the physical things of of a boy. And I'm like, okay, that, but that was just part of what made me quite different. I definitely felt that I perceived and experienced the world in quite a different way to the typical person. And, you know, I had a, a few social problems just not really knowing how to communicate with people very well and often being too scared to communicate with people. So just preferring to take the role of an observer. And what that meant was that my way of learning about the world was really through stories. And I don't think I mentioned that I grew up in churches and with Bible stories and I was a little bit different to the people around me in that I saw them as works of fiction with a purpose. I grabbed onto that personally and thought, wait, this is a really good way of me getting ideas across to people and people getting ideas across to me. Um, Just that way of communicating was much more like breathing to me. So definitely it takes me effort to write books and stories, but I would argue that it takes me less effort than to make conversation with someone. Um, I do it and I get a lot out of it, but definitely it comes much less naturally to me. So that is really where everything began with my storytelling and it, it just went from there and spending a lot of time purposefully on my own, aside from my... <laughs> My mum trying to set me up with friend dates to to get me to be with people. It's so funny how parents often try and do that, isn't it? I would often crawl up. So at different homes, I found different places to escape, which would usually be finding a tree that went onto like the roof of a shed or something. And I would hide up there and just read. <laughs> so I'm wondering, you were saying before that, as a child, you know, growing up, you felt quite different to all the people around you in multiple different ways. You know, there was all lots of these kind of things that you're like, well, that's not like me. That's not like me. That's not like me in the people around you. And I love your description of growing up in the church and actually having the wherewithal to kind of see these Bible stories really for what they're intended, which is, you know, a parable, right? A a means of getting across a message and not necessarily meant to be interpreted literally. I'm wondering, is there any particular narratives or stories that you found when you're a child in that state of feeling so isolated that made you feel connected or that you really identified with and you sort of thought, oh my God, that's me. I I finally feel seen or not really at that stage. Didn't connect too much to specific characters. I think I did see myself a little bit in um, Anne Shirley from Anne of Green Gables. That character I'm very strongly connected with and 
in a little way, Sarah Crew from um, The Secret Garden, but not really in in terms of personality, but more of the being in different environments that where I, I guess the, the rules were different and it took a while to figure out what those rules were about how to operate in that space and the, the isolation. There were a few other stories and... I, I won't specify what these other ones were, but they're pretty much all little orphan girls. And I did not even notice that. It was just when I was going through some of my favourite books with my partner that um, he's like, there's a lot of orphan girl stories here. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I, I guess that's just how I felt because I felt so, I felt alien compared mm. to my family, like just... I felt so different to them, although as an adult, so I'm turning 40 this year, in just the last few years, I have been finding out that I do actually have some similarities with my family, particularly with things like I just have very strong reactions to anything sensory. I kind of, yeah, I I am very much affected by the world around me. And I guess because that's not so much of a visible thing necessarily, you know, you can see someone reacting or agitated or something, you don't know why it is. So if any of my siblings were going through that, I didn't know that that's what it was. So um, back to thinking about seeing myself in, in characters, I did want to specify that as a child, I never saw any trans characters, for starters, um, but also I have never felt reflected in any that I've seen since. So I have seen a few since, and I'm like, well, no, that's not me. That's not me, um, which is one of the reasons, you know, I I wrote my own story because I felt People weren't relating to me in the way that I wanted and part of that was because they lacked that media to give them that frame of reference and I actually have no interest in reading stuff like that. Like I don't want to read about my experience. (laughs) I want to learn about other people. I want to learn how to navigate situations with people who are different to me and that's one of the things now that I love about stories is learning about other people in a safer environment than trying to learn directly off a person who may get upset by your curiosity, like I have with people. Yeah, I think it's so important to have that representation in books and media because it gives people that framework like what you were talking about to really understand, you know, the inside of what's going on for people and even just have like the language and the understanding to like hang, I guess, different experiences on. Like you were saying, when you were younger, you notice sensory sensitivities, but you might not have had the language for that at the time to understand and recognize exactly what that was. And I I don't know if you guys have noticed, but definitely In the past year, at least, I've seen a lot more uh, like articles and, and, you know, stuff on SBS and different news channels about neurodiversity and particularly neurodiversity in adults and women. And we've had so many more, I guess, inquiries 
coming in um, to like our clinic just because people are seeing, you know, those representations of themselves and going, oh my God, that really describes my experience. And now I have like a word for that. I have read a few things and I I have had a few friends who I've been very close with just online um, rather than, you know, your typical in-person friends. I do have those too, but I have had some very close friendships that have almost entirely been online through emails. And every now and then I'll, I'll be sent something, you know, about I got sent an article about autistic burnout and I'm like reading through it. I'm like, oh, wow, I recently went through all of this and there have been periods in my life where, yeah, I have routinely gone through this. And it's interesting, I think, specific to my situation, navigating the world as a woman who is open about her past as having to have lived as another gender previously and that had felt wrong. I have often had situations where people are searching for something to confirm that. So if they're communicating with me and looking and they're like, oh, we're not picking up any signs yet, that they'll be looking for little confirmations. Not everyone does this, but people do do that and I think they're more obvious than they realise. Otherwise, they maybe wouldn't do it unless they're a terrible human being. But because of that situation, I have kind of put extra masks on to to really shield myself from that, which I think has made it more difficult in my case where I've kind of got a mask on a mask on a mask on a mask. But I did want to say that I discovered Love on the Spectrum and it wasn't until I saw one of the girls in there that I realised that I have never felt represented before that moment in something about relationships. And she wasn't trans, but I felt like she had my personality. She had some of my struggles. Her brain got a little bit stuck like mine does. And I'm like, that's like me. And I just about lost it. I'm feeling all, my body's feeling funny now, just like thinking about it. It was like a year or two ago now, but like it's still with me so strongly. And that was just such an exciting thing to see. And it's probably part of the reason that I'm doing a podcast with my partner, because I'm like, well, maybe I can be that for someone else. think what's really interesting about what you were flagging there, Paige, is that, you know, sometimes when people might try and include representation or diversity in their cast or in their story, sometimes that ends up coming across in a little bit of a caricature way without actually fully identifying that, you know, each individual, no matter what their gender, their diversity, their neurodivergence is, all of these things going on, you know, we're all made up of so many different parts that, you know, when someone says, this film has a trans character in it, it's like, okay, what else have they got, you know, to them or, or why else would I, you know, identify with them? And so I, I love what you were saying there around, and, and I'm wondering, you know, if this is what you're attempting to do in your kind of intentional storytelling work is really create these fleshed out nuanced characters that, you know, can represent someone or be that identification point for someone. Absolutely. It's starting from the beginning stage. So 
I love Sia and Sia's music. Wow, not the film music, but her music in general. And I'm bringing that up as an example of she had a wonderful idea of bringing a specific story that she wanted to tell and she wasn't open to adapting that in consultation with the community. And Mm. so when it came out. It was a shit show. (laughs) Yeah. And then understandably, I guess, she didn't react too well to people telling her she had done the wrong thing. And it it was just, yeah, a a big, terrible, terrible situation. And, And it's a real shame. And part of that, I feel, was that right at that beginning stage with bringing the idea to life, there should have been some consultation back then. Now, I work on the number of three, and that is if I have a character with certain traits, I want to have spoken to three very different people with those traits because you'll get some different insights. And I'm doing that a bit more through my own podcast where I chat with people about their specific issues with media representation. And these are people of different walks of life with different diagnoses in different parts of the world. And I have already had some double ups and I'm really hoping to have triple ups and more because no one person has exactly the same thing to say. Partly that's in terms of what they would like to see, but a lot of them are saying the same things that they don't want to see. And I I really think that, you know, at that beginning stage, it's so important because if I think about my own situation, trans characters have been used as a plot line for shock or horror or disgust. As someone watching that and being like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, if someone finds out about me and they had previously been physically attracted to me, now I'm disgusting enough to warrant violence against me. And that is in so many stories. That's at the beginning beginning stage of, of that planning, that story. You have to start there to cut that off. There's this term incidental diversity. I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but it's just a person with some trait, some human experience. That just happens to be the experience that they have, but it's not actually relevant to the story. And I've had some very unfortunate advice during my writing career, especially around the time that I went to film school, where I was essentially told quite a few times that you need to have a reason for a character basically to not be a straight white male. And I'm like, but all these other people are living their life. And they're like, well, no, because, you know, they're just going to make the assumptions. So, you know, you actually have to have a reason for them to not be that. And seeing your face, it looks like maybe you'd be surprised by the number of people who hold that sort of belief. But there's definitely, definitely improvement um, Mm -hmm. in that space. What you were saying there, Paige, just reminded me of a story that I heard a while ago, and I I can't, this would be so much better if I could remember the actual person, Um, but it's someone who was, uh, he's a Hollywood writer for various kind of um, sitcoms and and things like that, or, or drama pieces, and he was getting all this praise around, oh my God, you write women so well. How do you make your female characters, you know, so nuanced and and so, you know, complex and and whatever? And he said, it's easy. 
I just write them as men and then change the gender at the end. Absolutely. I did a writing course with Tim Ferguson last year and one of the points he made was flipping the gender of characters when you've written them will usually really increase the level of interestingness of the the characters and the stories and it it's funny because if I think about a lot of the real women in my life, they're not necessarily the caregivers and cooking all the meals, cleaning all the time and everything. But mostly when I'm looking in film and TV, a lot of the women are still assuming those roles. And I definitely don't have a problem with there being those characters. I have a problem with there being a lack of other characters And I think that is where a lot of writing diverse characters really gets into trouble is that there are still so few of a particular story that that specific story just becomes the whole representation. As sort of an example, so when Caitlyn Jenner came out, there was this period of time that people around me just kept coming up to me with questions and stuff and assumptions based on her. And I have no no similarities with her whatsoever, apart from the fact that we've both been through a gender transition. You know, I am not sporty in the least. I am so uncoordinated. I could never, was she a tennis player or something? I don't even know. God, I have no idea. But also... I don't think I have the personality to mix with people like the Kardashians. That just wouldn't work for me. I think, you know, I I don't wear makeup or jewellery. I I don't understand a lot of those, I guess, status symbols that are so important to them just because culturally, like, I feel differently. And it's almost like people have identified, oh, this one thing about you is similar to this other random celebrity. Therefore, Mm. you must be completely, you know, have the insight and knowledge to comment on the inner workings of this person's mind. Ask me about plants. Ask me about scream. Don't ask me about trans people because I don't know. (laughs) It's not an interest of mine. I wonder if this is a good place to to ask you about your thoughts on intersectionality because I feel like we've kind of been talking about that a little bit and it would be great to hear more about that for our listeners who may not know what intersectionality is or means. Absolutely. So it's a fairly modern word, intersectionality, coined by Kimberly Crenshaw and it really is about the different parts of our identity, each of which can have separate connections to discrimination and harassment and stuff like that, but also the overlap can then again predispose us to to various negative experiences. Usually it has been used to describe negative experience like being excluded or being more likely to be incarcerated. And it is really, it's an acknowledgement that, for example, all women would not have the same experience and not face all the same challenges. All people with a disability would not face the same challenges. 
or people of a particular race or skin colour. All of those things work together, especially with a lot of visible things, but also invisible things as well. I mean, neurodiversity doesn't have to be visible and it can still affect every minute that you're awake and maybe when you're asleep. So thanks for going through that explanation of intersectionality with us. I'm wondering, as someone who has grown up, as you said, in kind of rural, almost semi-regional Australia, you grew up with a lot of presence of religion. Um, I'm making the assumption that you grew up in a small town because that's most towns in um, rural and regional Australia. I'm wondering what your own experience of intersectionality has been and and what things you feel like have intersected um, to impact how you see the world and, and how you experience the world. Absolutely. Well, it's a lot. I can tell you that much. One of the first things I think that would have affected my whole life going forward was I didn't go to kindergarten and then instead of going to preschool, we had someone come and see me and we'll play with puppets and things. I don't have a really great memory of that, just that my first very traumatic day of school was really the first time I remember being away from my mother, which is I'm realising as, as I talk with more young parents that that's very unusual. That's huge as well, you know, to go from your first day of school um, being, I'm guessing, you know, your your prep day and never having ever been away from mum before that, you know, that is such a massive jump. And then, you know, I'm probably getting ahead of you here, but I'm wondering how you feel like your own temperament impacted that. Because, you know, you can have little kiddos who are quite boisterous and other kids who are more sensitive and more anxious types who, you know, have a much harder time with that. So I'm wondering what what that was like for you. Yeah, I definitely developed into the more sensitive, anxious type. And really, I felt incredibly overwhelmed by all those people I'd never seen before. And so much colour and noise on the walls in those rooms. I had no experience with a room with like pictures all over the walls and floors and everything. Like it was just so much. And then the noise. <laughs> of people. You know, it it would be interesting if we were able to travel to some parallel universe for for each of these different things and maybe a different version of Paige who had gone to to kindergarten and preschool, learnt to socialise a bit earlier. I do wonder, would my sensory sensitivities be different? I I do think, you know, there, there is a possibility and I don't think we can ever prove this, but that some of that sensitivity sort of stems from that, that experience where I went from quiet and very few people, lots of nothing and darkness to bright, loud, noisy, strangers everywhere. You know, that's yeah. such a huge contrast. You'd never had that kind of almost nervous system habituation. And it's interesting because it's kind of like this fine line, I guess. And then this is why I have so much empathy for, for parents kind of managing this. It's like, okay, where's the line between making my child feel overstimulated beyond what they have capacity to handle versus habituating them to an increased level of stimulation so that we're not going from zero to 10,000 in one day, as it sounds like was the case for you? Yeah, absolutely. I think staged 
approaches work for many different things. And definitely if there's something difficult, why not plan out a hundred steps to get there? Yeah. I think a lot of people don't realize as well how overstimulating school can be. Um, And just having that shock, I think, to the system of going into primary school, um, especially if it's a negative experience, it can be quite traumatic for people. Another complexity in the mix, I guess, and I didn't find this out until I think I was in grade six, was I found out that I was colorblind. And Thinking back, you know, I had done ridiculous things like colour in the ocean purple, which I now know it's not purple, (laughs) but it wasn't until I was in a doctor's office because we were trying to investigate why I was getting headaches. I was getting a lot of headaches as a child and I was asked to read above the red line um, on the eye chart and I said, which red line? Because I saw two red lines, but there was a red line and a green line. And that was when they brought out the, you know, isochromatic plates or isohara plates and were like, okay, tell me what numbers and letters and stuff you see. And I was like, oh, I'm quite colorblind. And I was told that I would never be a pilot. And for a long time, I wanted to be a pilot. If we skip forward to around 2012, 2013, I was going through the process with the Australian Defence Force of uh, trying to get into the Air Force as a way of getting a degree as a mature student because, well, for circumstances, I was never able to finish high school twice over. Um, And that affected, you know, a lot of things later on. And I, I can be very obsessive, but I'm very good at focusing for hours and hours and hours at a time on a task. And for the Defence Force, it was looking for patterns and learning maths that I hadn't learnt properly in school. The reason I give you that context is because I aced the aptitude test and somewhere around here, I still have the, the sheet because I was so proud of the number of roles that I was open to because of my cognitive ability. But when I was presented with that, I was so excited. But something tweaked. I'm like, oh, pilot is on there. I can be a pilot. And he's like, oh, why Why couldn't you? You're like, your test scores were really good. And, and I'm like, oh, well, just my eyes. And he's like, oh, I haven't got the color, the color blindness thing back. So he, he brought it back. And he brought back another sheet of paper. And he's like, oh, these are the things that you can do. And it was like five rolls down from like 50 roles because so many of them they're like if you if you have any kind of color vision defect you you can't do that role and it's like heartbroken and um I never went back that's really surprising to me like I and I it makes sense exactly you know as you say it but it's surprising to me that there's so many roles that you couldn't do being colorblind absolutely I I have wondered a little bit, you know, were they all roles that had an inherent requirement of perceiving colour? It's possible. More likely is they haven't been in a situation to make it accessible. And making something accessible can be difficult. 
Sometimes it's not. But but not impossible. <laughs> and and sometimes, you know, and you know, look, obviously we're speaking here having, you know, I have no knowledge of the Air Force of or how these things work. But I think oftentimes when something just when something hasn't been done before, the easy option is to say, oh well, it's not possible, or this is going to be too difficult to make it worth it. Slight tangent, but I think this is where neurodivergence is so crucially important in our success as a species because neurotypical people are so um or, or can be so fixated or stuck in this is how things are done, it's going to be too difficult to change it. And this is the way that it is. And it's often neurodivergent people who come in and say, well, actually, why? Why is it difficult? And I think it's really interesting because we often talk about autistic people getting stuck and, you know, the quote unquote rigidity of autistic people. And I think that every single person is rigid in their own way. Neurotypicals are rigid about some things and autistic people are rigid about other things. It's just differences in, in where that's directed. Yeah, the autistic person could be rigid and going, no, I will change this or fix this. <laughs> Definitely for myself, I feel that I can be more determined than is wise with something other people might see as a lost cause. The, the whole thing where I struggled with my family and persisted with my family for a decade to acknowledge who I was. <laughs> 10 years is actually a really long time. <laughs> and for them to have resisted for that long as well, like some of those tendencies and then me just basically flipping the table and saying, you know what, now is the time. It's been a decade. <laughs> Moving forward, it will be this or nothing. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think with family stuff, it can be really hard sometimes to set those boundaries because like we were talking about around that sense of persisting and kind of being um, rigid, I guess, around this is, uh, I'm going to persist with this. I'm going to keep focused on this. I'm going to keep doing that. That can be an amazing strength in lots of respects. Um, and sometimes though, when it comes to relationships in particular, if we're so focused on someone else changing how they respond to us, it actually often doesn't end well because it's not up to us how other people respond to us. You know, that's up to them. And if people are consistently showing us that, no, I'm not willing to meet you where you're at. No, I'm not willing to accept your boundaries. No, I'm not willing to actually understand you. Then as hurtful as it is, sometimes it's actually more hurtful to keep insisting that they change who they are and, and respond differently. So it sounds like 10 years does sound like a really long time. And I'm sure that must have been incredibly difficult. Absolutely. But it really helped me with the importance of boundary setting. And I have burnt so many bridges since then where I've realized, oh, why am I doing this? Why am I persisting with this? I actually have as many friends as I want to ever have. I have a support network, people who don't fight me on everything and why would I keep up relationships with people who upset me all the time and I think yeah that that's where I came to with my family um I just got to a point where I realized I just had this idea that family is important and I think that that is just something that I was raised with and I still feel that so deeply within me 
family are still very important to me. My partner's family are especially important to me. And I feel kind of lucky that things went the way they did in the end because I wonder if I could ever have reconciled having that immovable value within myself of family is important, it's the most important thing, versus these are the people who've never accepted me or took 10 years of like really saying, hey, no, please respect me, please respect me. (laughs) I can laugh about it now. I think what you said before when you were saying, why would I persist with a relationship with people who continually upset me? You know, it's as simple as that. And I think that is really, really hard sometimes to come to terms with, particularly when it is family. And I think as a society, we do exactly as you were saying, Paige, we have this really kind of deep-seated, well, family is important no matter what. And it's interesting that um, saying that people say all the time, blood is thicker than water. The full saying is actually the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb, meaning actually that your made family, the blood of the covenant, people that we choose to make a covenant with is actually thicker and more important than the water of the womb. So people who are just, you know, who we are in family with. And, you know, I do think that family is important, but family doesn't have to be your genetic family. Yeah. I think a lot of people will create their own family and that's really important to them. Brains can get very noisy. I tend to go through phases in what's most helpful in quieting that noise and recentering. And at the moment, I've been gravitating towards music and soundscapes, slowly making my way through a huge library on the Calm app. And I've been trying to get better at having a more peaceful morning routine. And I've definitely found that the morning playlists really help a lot with that, actually. Yeah, I think most people think of meditation as the only way we can ground ourselves and quiet our brain, but sound and music are actually so helpful. What's really cool about the music and sound library on Calm is the variety. They've got playlists for times of the day and certain moods, soundscapes, and even alpha wave and bilateral stimulation tracks, which can be incredibly effective at helping you to emotionally regulate and getting your brain in a sleep-ready state. For sure. My favourites at the moment are the Disney soundscapes. So they've got things like an evening in Jasmine's garden, Merida's mystical Scottish forest, um, as well as other ones that you'd expect, like rolling thunderstorms and the like. The Calm app puts the tools that you need to feel better in your back pocket. If you go to calm.com forward slash neuro, you'll get a special offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription. And new content is added every week. For listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com forward slash neuro. Go to calm.com slash n-e-u-r-o for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com forward slash neuro. Paige, we've talked today a bit about, you know, your experiences kind of growing up and some of the different intersectionalities that you've experienced um, and your role at the moment or, or what you, your passion, I guess, of, of intentional storytelling. Can you tell us a little bit about what neurodivergence means to you? 
kind of more generally and what do you feel the place of neurodivergence is in society and what place has it had in your life? A couple of questions there. Interpret how you will. So many <laughs> questions. I need to write them down. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So I think in broad terms for me, neurodivergence really is perceiving or experiencing the world in a way that differs from the majority. And I think our understanding as a society has been expanding and as we've kind of mentioned um, throughout this podcast, there's been more of an understanding of, of the full spectrum. And I think it's funny that the term spectrum might have been used before when it was actually a very narrow idea of neurodivergence. I think it's just a natural thing. I think a lot of the systems we've set up including the education systems, the way media and stories are presented. It's very industrial. It's uh, this attempt to create a one-size-fits-all in every aspect of your life, which is ridiculous and I feel quite unhealthy as well. I think I, I see it a little bit as... We're, we're all different and there's not necessarily any bad people, but some of us are bad for each other. And I think what we've tried to do is make something that is good for everyone. And I don't think that exists. I think you need to always have options. If you think about a garden, gardening is one of my loves. <laughs> it's one of the things I find most calming in the world biodiversity is incredibly important in your garden to reduce the number of harmful pests on your crop or your flowers, whatever it is. You know, some people grow for food, some just for the way things look. And I think it's the same in a social circle or a work setting. Biodiversity or neurodiversity is super important for better approaches to solving problems, the ability to see problems that other people can't see. I don't know if it's that, mu that much more than that to me. I think it's just the way things are. Yeah, I think that's a really great explanation of neurodiversity. And as is the case for many things, it's actually just as simple as that, as simple as the fact that you know, the whole earth, every single thing that's natural thrives best in diversity, right? You know, when we have biodiversity in things, um, when we have differences in the way that we think. And I really think that part of the reason that society finds it so difficult to accept diversity of any kind is that most people are neurotypical, typical meaning common, not normal. You know, so most people have the most common type of brain. And part of that neurotypicality is that extreme anxiety or kind of subliminal or subconscious fear of not maintaining your position in the social hierarchy, not maintaining your position in the tribe. And I think that's part of why neurotypicals are so anxious or resistant. And, you know, anger is just most, most cases comes from fear, right? It's our defense mechanism so anxious, angry, resistant to anything that might challenge that because 
neurotypicals are so afraid of stepping outside the status quo and losing that position in the social hierarchy. And I think this big movement that we're starting to see at the moment where everyone is coming in and we're getting so many more uh, experiences of other people, that feels challenging to a lot of neurotypicals, I bet. Um, But part of what we need to do in this moment is take a deep breath, realize that it's not going to kill us and listen to someone else speak. And that's what you're doing now? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Let me take my deep breath first. (laughs) That was just making me think about something that I've realized later in years is that I have felt this incredible freedom in having to fight for acknowledgement that, you know, my gender is different to what people expected, it has, for me, allowed me to reevaluate absolutely everything. And not many people know this, just kidding, everybody knows this, but I love spreadsheets and everything in my life is in a spreadsheet somewhere, um, including multiple relationship spreadsheets. <laughs> Oh, that's next level spreadsheet game. I love spreadsheets. I love spreadsheets. Um, For example, one of these spreadsheets, I tried to list out as many things that I believed about the world and my place in it as possible and went through the list and looked at, you know, why do I believe that, you know, is that a core value? Do I want to keep that? Or is there some way that I can just, you know, pull it out and stomp on it. So Paige, tell us what strengths have your neurodiversities given you? I think my ability to focus and I've been useful in a few different ways to different people. So a more entertaining example might be that my friends had a a themed party and they needed to make hundreds of little paper marigolds. So I was able to sit there for a few days and make those. I feel that, you know, that's very much a strength. You know, I, I felt tired after it, that's for sure, but I was quite happy doing that. And I think in the same way, I'm quite happy to spend a lot of times sitting next to my partner on the couch while he plays video games. But I do also seem to be pretty good at problem solving and creative problem solving. That is feedback that I get at work is that the ideas that I come up with are usually unexpected and in a useful way. I think those are two pretty important things. And I I guess, so I have a bizarre memory. My memory is absolutely bizarre, but I can often recount very specific situations and conversations in great detail and I'll be able to tell you, you know, there were five lamps in the room or something like that, you know. I, And that is incredibly helpful for writing a book about your life, for example. You're able to really just like jot that stuff down. And related to that is an ability to structure things and break things down into parts. I find that like very easy to to work out 
So, for example, it might take me a week or something to work out the entire structure of a novel or a procedures manual. Same thing, really. Those, those are some of the strengths, I guess, of how my brain works. Yeah, brilliant. So it sounds like there's some things that you've noticed that are like cognitive strengths. So things like um, breaking tasks down, seeing the smaller details in things, the way that your memory works, um, your creative problem solving style. And then there's some other things as well that are social strengths. And I really loved hearing about those because you know, so often we have this view that um, women in particular who are neurodivergent and particularly women who are autistic or on the autism spectrum, it's all negative things. And it's really interesting and I think really positive and, and good for representation <laughs> to be on theme for today, you know, to hear about actually what you feel like your social strengths are as a neurodivergent woman. So that was really great to hear. Tell us a little bit about what some of the challenges have been being a neurodivergent woman and some of the intersectionality um, that you've talked about with your experiences. Something that has been a struggle in a lot of situations has been around my sensory sensitivities and particularly how much energy I've spent hiding it. So, for example, for years I would go to trivia and trivia in the pub. And for the first few years I was doing that, I would drink a lot of alcohol. Partly that was, yes, I had a major problem with alcohol. I'm unable to have a healthy relationship with alcohol. So I am now, I think about five years sober, but that alcohol helped dull my senses a bit. And so that sensory overload wasn't so much. But I did still have to, you know, I would just go to the bathroom just to sit there and get some peace and quiet. When I chose to end my relationship with alcohol, I had significant issues managing my reaction to the environment around me. And I have slowly been getting better at managing that. And it it is just how it is for me that I will always have to manage that. That That is a thing that I have to manage. And I've finally this year been able to be open with my team leader and say, this is actually the reason I have to go to the bathroom every hour. The way I hide it socially is first thing in the morning, I fill up my water bottle, I drink the whole water bottle, and then I have to go to the bathroom. You know, I do that every hour and just that break from, you know, the bright lights, everybody talking on the phone, it's helpful, you know, just brings me back down and I can work a normal day. And I have had to have an access plan put together at work for this sort of stuff. And it's, there was a bit of resistance at first because they're like, oh, but you can do your job. And and I'm like, no, it's a, Mostly everything that I do is for myself. Like all the adjustments are things that I do in the workplace to to make sure that I can thrive at work. And it just takes a little bit of effort, but I love working full-time and I can work full-time. And that can be quite difficult to communicate to an employer. But I'm very fortunate to be in, in a place where my team leader has that information. So now 
you know, I'm not necessarily going to get comments now about, oh, gosh, you go to the toilet a lot. It's like, well, it's medically needed. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting what you were saying there around both using alcohol to dull that sensory stuff and then using the bathroom as well. And it's, you know, I mean, not surprising, but that just comes up so frequently for people, I think, as the top two tools for sensory management, alcohol and a toilet cell. And, you know, what we were talking about earlier around it is possible to make these changes and adjustments and make things more accessible for people with different neurotypes. How great would it be if a big chunk of the population who has these needs didn't have to use a drug or a toilet to make themselves be able to function socially and to engage in a job that they love? So I'm so glad that, you know, even though it was a bit of a struggle, you eventually got to a point where your employer took you seriously and were able to kind of make some of those changes. I think it would be really helpful for our listeners if you chat through what some of those adjustments actually were um, and what that looks like in practice for you. Absolutely. I can go through a few of them. So one is around my desk space. I have it purposefully set up now where my back is to a wall and that is a spatial thing where if there's the possibility of someone being around behind me, I can't not focus on that and that really draws me away from the work that I'm doing but also kind of if we look at me from a spectrum of calm to very agitated, I'm always trying to get back down to the calm side wherever I can and there are lots of things that are trying to get me up to the agitated side. So in previous workplaces where I've had people walking behind me, having conversations behind me, having a door that opens and closes behind me. That has my base level way too far up towards agitated. And that was a difficult one to articulate because it almost sounds like, oh, do you want to hide in a little cave? And it's like, oh, no, I'm just, I'm still accessible. People can see me. People can walk around and come and talk to me. It's just the the behind me thing. It's, it's a very specific thing. So that's one thing. Another thing is with how deadlines and tasks and meetings are communicated to me. I really struggle with things that are vague and often I will see multiple options that other people don't see. And it's astounding to me that someone will put together a sentence that is ambiguous in in an email. Like it just blows my mind. I'm like, why would you do that? Can't you see this means four different things? Which thing do you mean? And obviously, I can't get worked up about it like that in the workplace. But what we've been able to work through is really just just some guidelines for, you know, this this is the best way to put, put out information or ask me questions. It's better to allow me to digest information, think about it and then offer some solutions. I'm not very good at coming up with random solutions in the moment. I like to to ruminate. I like to marinate in all of the details. Put them in a spreadsheet if I can. Of course. (laughs) I do actually have this in writing is the the permission for me to ask questions when, Mm -hmm. when I'm confused about something. And I've had to have some really difficult conversations with work 
where I, I've had to say, look, I understand that for you this makes sense. I feel that there's context missing that I need to be able to piece this together. And that has happened so many times and it's really just been in the last year or two that I have felt comfortable standing up and saying, hey, um, I need more information or I need better information before I can actually take appropriate action. So th- those are some of the main things uh, for my specific situation in my workplace. Yeah, I think it's it's just so helpful for other people to to hear, I guess, um, yeah, what are some of the strategies people have come up with for their own specific workplace? And I think, yeah, it's very clever the different things people come up with uh, from within themselves of how to try and manage things. And, you know, sometimes it takes time to realize and, and put together what is triggering or draining and to come up with a solution that works. Um, so, yeah, it's really helpful to share that information. Thank you, Paige. I, I was going to say also that um, we've kind of had agreements about expectations, about being upfront and specific about expectations. Mm-hmm. So, I don't need to be told how to do something, but I do need to know what I'm expected to produce and by when. And it's amazing how many people in leadership positions don't really think that that's important. But for me, definitely. I love a deadline to work to and a specific outcome. And then I can be as creative as I want in how to get there. It's just having that clear communication. And yes, people will sometimes have assumptions. They're communicating in that secret mind language that never comes out of the mouth. And yeah, I think just asking people, reminding people, you know, I need really clear communication and clear expectations. Uh, I think that's so reasonable. And I guess to just kind of circle right back to where we started, we were talking at the start of our interview today that, you know, the importance of representation in media and seeing all these different types of people and types of personalities and types of experiences represented. Um, And when you were saying earlier, Paige, you know, really actually having it in writing that you will ask questions about things and that you will sometimes need more context or clarification than someone has provided. I wonder, and and what I hope, I guess, for the future is that the more we have really interesting, complex, um, you know, diverse characters represented in media, the more people will just intuitively understand that and not have a negative response to that or, you know, a reactive response to that. So, Paige, can you share with us a little bit about what your current interests and passions are at the moment? I have a few. I absolutely love film and television, although that interest, and I will say right now that I have more obsessions than interests, I think. I tend to either be super into something or I just don't understand why anybody would have any interest in it. And film and TV has been a hugely complex interest for me as I have continued to learn about myself and continued to have conversations with people about how they feel they are impacted by different stories and characters. So 
for example, there are some things that I have loved at some time and then I've tried to go back and watch them and they kind of hurt to watch. And that that is like I find that incredibly difficult and murky water to swim through. I, I don't know if this counts as an interest, but I love walking around and walking is a thing that I need to do. There's a huge difference between me on an afternoon where I've got some walking in and me on an afternoon where I haven't had walking. I tend to be like a bit, have to rock my legs and stuff. And I just like am generally agitated and it's more likely that um, my partner will (laughs) say something that will piss me off. It sounds like you are really across how helpful the strategy of walking is for you, you know, to regulate your nervous system. Was that something that you spent a long time trying to find something that helped to regulate you? Or did you always know what, you know, intuitively what regulated you? No, I always walked a lot, but it wasn't until the last few years that I really started paying attention. And you'll be surprised by this shock. I put together a spreadsheet. I listed basically everything I do, everything I feel. And so a problem that I can have is not being great at the full picture, whatever the heck that means, but I'm really great with little details. So in this instance, what a spreadsheet was able to allow me to do was to have a look at every different part of my life and what I was doing and assess things that were unhelpful and helpful. So like six coffees in a day, unhelpful. I know it's a surprise. Walking, very helpful. And I can even reflect on times in my life where when I was obsessively trying to get into the Air Force and I suddenly went from very little exercise to insane amounts of exercise and ended up with shin splints that lasted for years, my mental health was was not amazing in those those months. I was supposed to not walk for longer than that, but I couldn't um, when I wasn't walking. So even even reflecting back, I I can see, but it it wasn't really identified at the time as something that I needed. And perhaps if I had known it back then, I wouldn't have pushed myself so hard. I would have just worked out something sustainable. That's another thing spreadsheets are fantastic for is helping you be more sustainable. I can see your grin. Is is this a podcast plugging spreadsheets? <laughs> <laughs> we don't um, get a commission on spreadsheets, just so you guys know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So Paige, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Did you have anything that you wanted to plug? Absolutely. Love a good plug. Definitely. I think if you want to have a more intimate idea of my experience as a child and really learning about myself throughout the years, I have written a memoir. I think, you know, it's it's very raw and intimate. It really gets people inside my head. I get feedback like, wow, it's it's like I was hearing your voice inside my head. And I hate answering personal questions about myself. So it's it's perfect that I can direct people to that. I've also written a science fiction 
um, novel as well. And I may never do that again because it's such hard work. I had to learn all the science that I invented for it. So the memoir is My Life Most Memoirable. And the science fiction one is Before We Pulled the Trigger. And you mentioned a couple of times that you have your own podcast. Can you let us know what your podcast is called and where we can find it? Absolutely. My podcast is on YouTube and everywhere else except, I think, Pandora. And I have a few different podcast series that I do. So one is talking through my relationship journey with my partner because I felt that it was a way to improve my representation and also to help our families really to connect with us in that in that way. So that is video and audio. So on YouTube, it, you see us. Um, with my other podcast, it's audio only. It's called Listen More with Paige Crystal Wilcox. And I've had lots of fantastic guests, including the hilarious Tim Ferguson and a lovely director called Sergio, who is Canadian-Italian, who talked through his process of directing a film about a culture that was different to his and, you know, what he used. So what I really want out of the podcast is to discuss with as many people as possible across the world about problems that they have when they see characters like themselves in media and ideas for what they'd like to see more of. So a writer could go to my podcast and say, oh, yeah, you know, I want to write a character who's in a wheelchair. Listen to three people who are in a wheelchair and have that baseline knowledge before going anywhere. And I will say that I have not had any neurodivergent guests yet. So if you're interested in being a guest, head to my website, pagecrystalwilcox.com. That's a great call out to our listeners. You could get a flood in your inbox. I'll only read it when I'm ready. I'm very good with boundaries. So Paige, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. I've been most welcome. Yes, thank you so much. It's been wonderful to talk with you and really hear about your experiences. Want more neurodivergent content? Head to our page on Patreon. Our Patreon supporters receive exclusive and additional content ranging from resources, additional information on episode content, responses to listener questions, book reviews, and mental health tip sheets. You can find a link to our Patreon in the show notes and on our website, www.ndwomanpod.com. We really appreciate your support on this journey as we aim to make quality psychological and mental health care information accessible to everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast. If you have a question or would like to contact us, you can do so through our Facebook and Instagram at the name The Neurodivergent Woman Podcast or our website ndwomanpod.com. You can also email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Bye for now.